So just a very brief background. Normally when we do this talk, it takes two to three hours. We have 45 minutes, so we're labeling this the quickie, okay? <laughs> Still a little long for that, but that's all right. Um, so I am, by training, an OBGYN. I've done the baby delivering thing, and now I like my sleep at night, so I no longer do that. I've retired from full-time OBGYN. Um, but I work um, with men and women with hormone management and sexual issues, and so that's just been a fun way to keep contact with people and help them in the most intimate areas of life. Um, I'm a cancer surgeon, and when it comes to sex, I'm still trying to figure out what's happening half the time. Uh, but uh, w my wife and I both have really bold conversations with people in the most intimate areas of our life. So uh, this, this is a very comfortable thing for both of us to speak with you. Sort of. Yeah, most of the time. But we, we sort of assume that it's not comfortable for you. And there's some good reasons for that. So hopefully we'll speak, speak the word of God and the gospel boldly today. And, uh, and the spirit will move and uh, improve your marriage, improve your understanding of your spouse. And that, that's really, I think, our shared vision and purpose here. Yeah, sure. Uh, why don't I pray over everybody just, just uh, before we get started here. Father, we come to you in your name. Uh, we lift up our marriages. We lift up our, our spouses and our fiancés. And uh, Lord, we know the plans that you have for us are great and that uh, the devil is tricky. And we just pray that you start moving, uh, break down barriers, open up lines of communication only as you can. In Jesus' name, amen. So for oneness to work, we need to do our own personal heart work. And where we even start with that is knowing our identity. And so at everybody's table, hopefully we have enough. There's one copy, two pages per couple. So being that we only have 45 minutes, I thought I'd teach you some Hebrew. Um, yeah. We had the opportunity to go to Israel with Res Life, and if you ever have that opportunity, please go. Um, but one of the things while we were there, just learned the richness of God's language, of Hebrew, and how not only does each word have so much depth and meaning, each letter in each word has its own meaning. And so I enjoy studying that way. And what's very important, I think, especially in the conversation about sex, is learning what man and woman were created for. And let's look at the words that, and letters that God used to create that. So on your paper, and I think it's up here as well, for man, it's ish. And I'm sorry, I don't actually speak Hebrew, so I'm sure there's a lot more like phlegm that goes into this. Um, but ish, and we read Hebrew right to left, so absolutely backwards from what you're thinking. So on the right side, the first letter, Aleph, Yad, Shin. That's what spells man. And if you look there, you'll see Aleph is leadership, authority, and oneness. Yad, a picture of an arm or a hand, the right hand meaning strength. And Shin is passion. It's kind of a picture of flames of fire or teeth and it's all-consuming. Kind of fits. You think strength when you think of the man. You think of leadership, authority, and you think of passion and all-consuming. Makes sense. Let's look at the woman. Isha. Again, Aleph. I think we recognize that from the man. Leadership, authority, and oneness. We share that. Shin. 
We've seen that before. The passion, the fire, and the all-consuming. The difference is hey. And that means to look or behold. It also stands for the divine breath of God, wisdom, and insight. And whenever you add hey to a noun, it feminizes it. So you had Sarah, Sarah and Sarai. So to change her name, it was the breath of God, the ah, the hey was added to her name. So we find the difference, the yad and the hey. Well, where do those come from? Those are the actual first two letters in Yahweh. Um, Yahweh is where we see that you can find that in Psalm 68, verse 4, where David's speaking. It's the covenant name of God. It's built from when God tells Moses, I am, in Exodus. This is Yahweh, the yad and the hey. So if you really think about it, God put his own name into man and woman, right? So it takes both together to get that oneness. So what happens when we take God out of our design? What happens when we remove the yod from ish or the hey from isha? You're left with a lef and shin, and what do those stand for? Flames, fire, um, a supernatural fire, or an altar fire. Um, what's the saying? Woman. Hell hath no fury but a scorned woman. Yeah. And that's, that's the ultimate picture of a godless woman. Right, so when you take God out of yourself and your own identity, or if you take God out of the relationship, we lose that oneness, we lose the Yahweh, and we're left with a burning, raging fire. And men, men aren't immune from this. You can imagine a godless man at his worst, how the fire and the, the passion really gets misdirected. And, um, and so these identity ideas, they are so closely linked to Yahweh that uh, you know, truly the, the merging of these things is, is a wonderful picture of God. The merging of man and woman is this wonderful picture of God here on earth. And so you can imagine if you're godless and you try to merge those things, well, you got fire fighting fire, right? And that doesn't just mean people, that could mean any facet of your life or any facet of your worldview or perspective, or frankly, your sexualization growing up. Um, you know, we all have exposure to things growing up that uh, affect how we view sexuality, how we view members of the opposite spouse or the same, or the same gender, or members of the opposite gender or the same gender. So each human conceived is another image bearer of God. And the enemy wants to know if you know who you are, because if you're wondering or questioning, that's a very open door for him to come in and attack. And especially when it comes to the vulnerability within our relationships and with our spouse, we can sometimes start to question ourselves, question our identity, feel that shame. And that's an easy open door for the enemy to come in. And furthermore, when you see your spouse at their worst, when their fire is coming out, and maybe there's not a lot of God in that fire that, for that particular I don't know day. if you know what you're talking about. <laughs> you can question their identity quite easily. And so the battle sexually is truly a battle for identity, the biblical identity, the Ish and the Isha. Um, so we, we challenge you, I mean, this isn't, this is meant to be a sex talk, but to get there, 
we challenge you to really filter everything with grace, especially with your spouse. It is so easy to take offense. I mean, I can be offended when the garbage isn't out, and I hear the garbage truck True coming story. down the street. <laughs> right? Last week. Yeah. Um, <laughs> It's the little things, right? We don't, I mean, you can think, okay, I shouldn't be offended about the big stuff, but even those little daily things that happen, they can build up a fence that can then build up in the relationship and then lead to trouble. You need something? No, I'm good. Okay. Um, so Genesis 2.25, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. I love that God chose to put ashamed there. There could have been a lot of different words to be used to describe the man and the woman. But he knew where we were coming and what was coming for us, and we, they were not ashamed. That is how God intended life before the fall. So I think that's telling us that we have to have sex with the lights on. Very intimidating concept. <laughs> but if you really think about it, um, we were designed in perfect creation without clothes on. And then the fall happened and shame entered in. Well, in many respects, we all, this is kind of a poetic thing, perhaps not an entirely biblical idea, but we all grow as people from a sexual standpoint. We start out innocent and then we grow to know shame and sexuality. One of the things we realized growing up, particularly in the church, is that the sense of morality about sex was really all that was talked about. Sex is wrong before marriage. Uh, there really was not a lot of communication, certainly not from my very conservative, wonderful, loving parents who really hid their sexuality in our home because they, didn't, they thought maybe it wasn't appropriate or they didn't know how to communicate it. But growing up, we're told sex is wrong, sex is wrong, sex is wrong, sex is wrong. Hey, you're married, it's great, have a good time. And, and we're like, oh, the guys are like, okay. And, you know, the wives are like, what do I do? Ah, yeah. So uh, there are some Christian cultural things that happen in terms of morality that really can bring shame, long-lasting shame, into the sexual relationship after marriage. And it's not challenging the idea of the, the moral. It's not challenging whether sex is truly right or wrong before marriage. But fundamentally, sex is right. Sex is right. God gives us parameters. He gives us timing. He gives us uh, a sense of where the boundaries might be, certainly before marriage. But nowhere in the Bible does God condemn the act of sex as part of his generational blessing to people. After the death, resurrection, and life of Jesus Christ, the second most important concept in the Bible is sex. If you think about how the Bible describes generations and God blesses generations, uh, you know, some of those passages where we're trying to read the whole Bible, we just skip like five pages ahead because we, we don't know the names, we don't know the significance of these people. Well, those are generations of people that are building God's uh, generations and they're all having sex. And so uh, we, there's sex scandals in the Bible. There's discussion of adultery and how the, uh, you know, it was handled in the Old Testament, how it's handled in the New Testament. If you read the Bible and, and you really look at how sex is described and handled, you, you get the picture that sex is critically important to God's plan for our lives. Now, that's not to say that um, being single 
it means you're not part of God's plan, and, and staying celibate is not part of God's plan. That's not true at all. But when you're raised with the, the idea that sex might be taboo or scandalous or inappropriate in some context, it's not always easy to just let off all the, you know, break all the rules when you suddenly get married and have a wonderful sexual relationship. It's actually quite the opposite. Um, and so the more we've talked to people, the more we've kind of delved into this, the more we realize that uh, shame in the Christian bedroom is a huge problem, a huge problem. So what core beliefs do you all have about sex? How, a raise of hands. How many of you had parents who spoke to you about sex? It's not, I mean, thank That's goodness. quite a few. <laughs> well, actually I was thinking the opposite. <laughs> I would say there's not a lot. How many of you had a parent who explained how to pleasure your spouse with sex? <laughs> That's a zero. Yeah. Clearly there's a time and a place for that. You're not going to be talking to your child when they're in high school about how that works. Um, but there may actually be a time and a place for that conversation eventually. How many of your parents taught you how to manage money? How many people taught you how to drive a car? How many people taught you how to do laundry? <laughs> and the people who haven't raised their hand, they're living in their mom's basement still. Okay, that's great. <laughs> we love you. Let's talk later. <laughs> so there's, we just want to get you comfortable to be able to have this conversation. First and foremost, with the one you're here with, because they are your one. And if you cannot stand naked in front of your husband or wife with the lights on, we need to figure out why. If you have trouble bringing up the conversation about something in the bedroom, we're here to tell you it's okay. And we wanna give you some words and some techniques and some things to make that more comfortable for you. So 1 Corinthians 7, verses 3 through 5, and I'm going to read this from the Passion Translation. A husband has the responsibility of meeting the sexual needs of his wife. I'm going to pause there and let all the women in this room know that we have a God-given sexual need. There is a myth out there that sex was created only for the man. Now I'm hoping most people in here don't agree with that, but that is extremely common, especially in conservative families, that sex was created just for the man and it's our duty as the wife to please him. Let's keep reading. And likewise, a wife to her husband. So. We both have sexual needs. This is an equal opportunity, right? This is for husbands and wives. It's not one direction or the other. Neither the husband nor the wife have exclusive rights to their own bodies, but those rights are to be surrendered to the other. So Pastor Duane uh, and, and Mark and I have talked about some of these ideas, um, not because he was trying to screen us. <laughs> or he was. Or he was, maybe he was. <laughs> and but, I was really nervous to have this talk 
and say vagina in front of Pastor Dwayne, but uh, <laughs> but here we, we are. We did it. We did it. <laughs> and and so there are some cultural, interesting cultural precedents. And one of one of my favorites, I think one of Dwayne's favorites, was that in in certain Jewish cultures, uh, the women have the right to have sex once a week, or uh, they can force a divorce. So if you think about the ownership of the sexual relationship. You know, the word of God says, husband has the responsibility of meeting the sexual needs of his wife, and likewise a wife to her husband. It, on the extreme end of the spectrum, there are cultures where the wife is uh, responsible for the sexual needs. And so um, I think many of us, particularly those who are raised in West Michigan, there is definitely a cultural expectation that comes that's very generational. Um, you know, if, not that my family has ever talked about it, but if you read between the lines, great, great grandpa and grandma, great grandpa and grandma, you know, mom and dad, like there's a pattern in how these things happen and, and some of the secrecy that surrounded it and some of the shame that our parents and grandparents felt about this conversation. And so in some ways, the shame of sexuality in our marriage was a generational curse because that shame was borne by our parents and dealt with. But, but nobody ever broke the curse. So some of what you guys are experiencing, maybe some of your hesitancy, yeah, it has to do with a comfort level, but there's something much deeper and spiritual happening. And so uh, just keep your ears open for what the Holy Spirit is telling you about that. So most everything we learn because about sex, um, if we're not having those conversations at home, where did we or where are our children or our grandchildren learning about this and we're really learning a lot about sex from the world and we as the church need to take this conversation back um, the flesh the world there's the spiritual side the the flesh side of life has really perverted or twisted the beauty that God truly intended us to have in our bedrooms right so just to reiterate God created sex Yes. So this is something that we need to look and bring back to him. Yeah, on that note, so sexualization happens to everybody. Whether you avoid every uh, sort of media exposure, every temptation in life before you're married, or whether you have a porn addiction and you've had sex before you're married or you, had, you were promiscuous at one time, you will sexualize as a human being before you get married. And so when people come into the bedroom, you have some preconceived notions about what sex should be like and how it should feel and what should happen. Um, a lot of people who have uh, viewed porn, they've literally memorized the sequence of these movies because there are steps in the movie. And so uh, people who are tend, they tend to be the higher drive spouse who are very stimulated by visual things, these, these types of images burn into the brain and they're very hard to get rid of. But even, even looking at something erotic or having a fantasy or having an idea, that also burns into your psyche. And what happens is that becomes an expectation for your spouse. And so sexualization is one of these things that creates expectations uh, in the flesh when all the time the Holy Spirit is wanting to lead you as a couple in how you experience sexuality. So in many ways, the battle is on an individual front 
where you have to figure out, okay, why does that arouse me? Why does that image arouse me? Why is this particular idea, why does that get me started? And bring it to the Holy Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, sanctify me. Show me the truth about this feeling. Show me the truth about this emotion. The Holy Spirit is really good at taking sexuality from the flesh and bringing it into the kingdom. He's really good at taking couples that have strongholds, sexual barriers, past sexual experiences, history of sexual violence, and making that new. But only the Holy Spirit can do it. You cannot do it on your own. You can't do it as a byproduct of striving, where you say, I'm going to have this incredible discipline. I'm only going to feel this way, or I'm going to do this. You need the fruit of, you need to pluck the fruit of the Spirit, which is self-control from the Holy Spirit, which is patience and peace from the Holy Spirit in your sex lives, because only that can break through the flesh. Sexuality in the flesh is incredibly powerful, incredibly powerful. It doesn't matter how much discipline you have. The devil's going to twist it and you're going to lose. You literally need the self-control of the Holy Spirit to make this work. And it is so powerful because it is the probably the one thing where you combine not only the physical, but the emotional and the spiritual. All three come together when it comes to intimacy with your spouse. So I stole uh, the seven P's of sex from Joyce Penner. Joyce Penner and her husband are Christian marriage therapists. Um, They have a couple books out there. I have not read all of them, but I've listened to them speak on different podcasts, and I like where they're coming from when they speak. So the seven P's of sex, it's personal. It's meant for pleasure. It's pure. It should be a priority. It's pressure-free. We put others first, and it's passionate. I'm just going to say those one more time. Personal. Pleasure, pure, priority, pressure-free, put others first, and passionate. So how do we live those out in our sex life? Well, the personal, we as individuals and as couples need to have that intimacy with God. To make this personal, we have to work on our own heart to break off the shame to break off those beliefs that we developed or were taught um, when we were younger, when we were learning what sexuality was all about, and break off the past. Um, The purity comes from our salvation, right? All is forgiven. So in terms of breaking off the past, there's a couple spiritual concepts that are really important here. Raise your hand if you've heard of soul ties. Great, so this is half of you have. Let let me introduce this idea if you haven't heard it. So uh, there are times in life where you idolize something or you choose something over God or someone over God and you violate God's will, you violate the word of God. And it's Yeah, there's a sin that happens, but there's also a demonic tie between you and that image or you and that individual. And uh, these soul ties are very permanent. And it's one of the reasons why when people are exposed to sexually explicit material, these images are hard to get rid of. There's a soul tie between you and that person you viewed or you and that person you fantasized about. 
these soul ties can extend back as, as young as you can remember. So you can kind of assume nothing about soul ties. You have to assume that if there's any prompting or temptation in your life, that there is a soul tie there. Uh, soul ties are easily broken. They're easily broken uh, just through a simple prayer. Father, I acknowledge the soul tie that I created with such and such. I break the soul tie in Jesus' name. I ask you for forgiveness. Let's move forward, Lord. Uh, it's as simple as that. You can reconnect that soul tie if you give into the temptation again. But if you do that over and over and over and over again, to particularly men who've viewed porn, men who have an active fantasy life that's not about your spouse. Or women. Or women. I'm speaking from a man's perspective. But yeah, it happens both ways. Mm -hmm. uh, you will start to see what happens in your spiritual life. Those temptations will fall away. But most people live like, uh, like a marionette puppet. They're, they're trapped by their soul ties and their sexuality. So they're trying really hard to do things, but they get pulled back and pulled back and pulled back. So snipping soul ties, breaking soul ties, is one of the critical things to undoing sexual addictions. But it's also critical for your marriage because it constantly has to be refreshed. You make soul ties quickly. Uh, the high-drive spouse, 90% of the men are the high-drive spouse in marriage. Uh, the high-drive spouse often creates soul ties on a daily basis because you look at someone walking down the sidewalk, you're like, whoa, soul tie. Uh, and you gotta break it, you gotta move forward. And so these, this is just a practical matter uh, for, for many men. Uh, sorry, the other, the other concept uh, from soul ties about your past is that um, if you've been forgiven for something by the Lord, and let's say it's something you did in the past, and the shame comes back, uh, it's really important to work with the Holy Spirit through that. If you've been forgiven, there's no condemnation in Christ, right? Your sins are as far as the east is from the west. But sexual sins create a lot of shame. And so if the devil keeps bringing up these ideas, hey, remember that thing you did a long time ago that was horrible? Everybody thought it was scandalous, and if they heard about it, they think it was scandalous. And you've already been forgiven. You dealt with that, and your spouse has dealt with that, and you're still feeling shame for that. Uh, you're under attack. And so that's a, that's a, a spiritual warfare thing. You've you got to tell the devil to get lost. You resist the devil and he will flee. Do not sit in that well of shame for a long period of time because that's exactly where the devil wants you and that's exactly what he wants for your marriage. So uh, the yod, the strength in the man, uh, the yod, when it comes to sexuality, the strength is really a spiritual warfare idea. So soul ties, spiritual warfare, and you, you'll watch your, uh, your love for your spouse grow. So moving on. I don't know how to transition really well from that one. Um, a couple other pieces. So that's personal impurity, right? So pleasure and pressure-free. This comes with communication. So we encourage you to teach each other about your bodies and have fun exploring together. So there are particular areas for men, particular areas for women that we'll get to in a little bit, um, the blunt part of our discussion. But um, we need to understand what our bodies are and what brings us that tingly pleasure when it comes to touch. Um, and please, speak out to your spouse what you like and what you don't like 
and that's okay. This is, this is the, the grace blanket here. You know, if you've been married, how, how long has the longest couple marriage been in here? 50, 50, if you've been married for over 40 years and something your spouse has touched or done just never has felt well and maybe doesn't work to arouse you and it's been 40 years and you haven't said anything, it's okay. Tonight's the night. Yeah. Tonight's the night. Yeah. <laughs> Tonight is the night. Tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I said, you know when they have those things where you can drop your illegal weapons off at the police station and you don't get charged? That's what this is. Complete amnesty yes. for the rest of the evening yes. for everybody. And by the way, gentlemen, so part of the female identity is the hay, which is wisdom and insight. So if you think that you're going to creep around the house, flexing your muscles, put on, put, light the Yankee candle, put on your black socks because it's Wednesday... <laughs> And your wife doesn't know what you're up to, you're, you're fooling yourself. Yeah. <laughs> if you haven't helped fold the laundry in forever, and all of a sudden you show up to do that just before bed, I'm going to wonder you're, what's you're on your mind. <laughs> they know. <laughs> yeah, they, we know. How, so that being said, this conversation that we're encouraging you all to have tonight, and I would encourage each one of you to number one, tell your spouse tonight one thing that you do in bed that you love. What is one thing that you do? What's one touch? What's one spot? Is it your breast? Is it the clitoris? Is it your behind? Is it your neck? What is it? Where do you like to be touched? Or is it something else? Is it a word? Is it a position? Um, tell your spouse what you like. The other thing I encourage you to do is tell your spouse something you would like to try. Think out of the box. Yes, thank you. And the next thing is, where are we having this conversation? This is not pillow talk. When you are going to speak to your spouse about sex, we highly recommend a date night and a dinner in between the two of you. We don't want this to be pillow talk. The pillow, the bed, is meant for the intimate time. These sex conversations need to happen before you get in the bedroom. It's a very important place to have that. If, if you're having this conversation when you're in the moment, it can create pressure. It can create stress for one of the spouses because maybe you have no idea what feels good and it's been a long time. Well, that's a really hard conversation to have when one partner's like, hot revved up 7,000 RPMs, and you're like, I don't know, I, I don't think it felt good ever. Um, so <laughs> it's critically important to open up the lines of communication in a safe place, eye to eye with lights on. Basically. And do not take offense. Don't take offense. Do not take offense. It's okay, you didn't know. And it wasn't communicated to you, and that's okay. That is okay. Um, another P, I, mean, I don't know where we are with time, but another P is priority. And this is really more for typically the women, but the lower drive spouse in the relationship. Um, put sex at the top of your to-do list, okay? 
Um, if you do not have desire, I, I've seen women now for the last 15 years, and the number one thing women say to me in the office is, if I never have sex again, it wouldn't bother me. Oh, this was created for your pleasure. This is the moment to have that intimacy with your spouse. Make sex a priority. If you don't have desire, the first place you can go is Holy Spirit. Ask him for it. He created it. He cares about what happens in your bedroom. He's not ashamed about what you do with your spouse or what you like. He created your body that way. He put more nerve endings at the clitoris than he did at the penis. I'm saying these words in church. <laughs> it's okay. Everything will be all right. Everything will be okay. Hang in there. Hang in there. Yeah, so. It reminds me of that Thanksgiving with my aunt and uncle and oh Matt said vagina, and I think everybody <laughs> dropped their forks on their plate. Like, yeah, our, well, well anyway. we can't go on too much of a tangent here, but <laughs> um, what were you saying? Yeah, sorry. <laughs> priority. Yeah, yes, priority. Yes, so, okay. So Marcus said, the Holy go to the Holy Spirit basically if you need help putting sex at the top of your priority list, right? If arousal is difficult, if, uh, if you've had some concerns in the past where you're so stressed out about what's going to happen in that bed 10 feet away that you're just so anxious you can't get aroused, uh, the Holy Spirit will make the path clear. Uh, for the high drive spouses in the room, uh, very, very often the, the high drive spouse uh, in times of stress is looking for sex as the relief. The low drive spouse is so stressed out they can't get aroused. So how does that work, right? One is looking for the remedy from another and the other is hiding from the high drive spouse because they are not ready, it's gonna hurt, it's gonna be awkward. So these are the everyday dynamics that, like we've been married for almost 25 years. We, we're both doctors, we went through training, we've had kids, like we, we've been in some very stressful periods of our lives and we know this reality. Uh, but men, particular, the high drive spouse can go to the Holy Spirit anytime for self-control. I'm gonna take a risk and tell a personal example from my life. So uh, this summer- These always make me nervous. <laughs> She has no idea where I'm going with this. But uh, this summer, Mark and I lived apart for probably two-thirds of the summer. So two out of three months. My family had a lot of travel obligations, and so it was a, we, we don't live apart from each other much. Well, we're, we're a married couple, and physically being apart for two-thirds of the summer is really hard for the high-drive spouse. And I so, was fine. Yeah, Mark was fine. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Yeah, this is this is married life, um, but for me, there this difference between self-discipline and self-control really came to rest because um, when you're full of desire and you're uh, as a, the high drive spouse, temptation is not far away, is not far away at all. And if you just say I'm not going to give in to temptation, it won't work. That that's the flesh. You're working from yourself. Uh, there's a spiritual discipline that, that you can learn in these situations by asking the Holy Spirit, Lord, give me a cold shower. 
uh, Lord, block my heart from these temptations. Uh, you know, Holy Spirit, I just need you. I didn't even know how to say it, but I, I'm so frustrated right now, I just need you. When you ask, you will receive. And if you have ever gone from being like, oh my, I need a cold shower, it's been three weeks, where's my wife, like I'm stressed, I, this, the high drive spouse is thinking, sex time. Uh, and then you ask the Holy Spirit. The to, second you walk in the door. Yeah, and she's feeling the pressure because she knows I'm like dying over here. But, um, but there, is, there is something instant and miraculous about how the Holy Spirit works. And so when you pray for the spirit of self-control, it's a real thing. Your anxiety goes down. You feel better. You see your spouse for who she is, not what she is. Right, because you can idolize your spouse's flesh. It happens in an instance. They are not an idol. It's it's the ish and the isha. It's the identity that you seek in your spouse sexually, not her parts, not necessarily the the images that you have in your head that you're trying to fulfill as a oh, impossible expectation. And so, when you uh, work this spiritual discipline, what you'll find is that your sexuality will change. It will change. It will move away from being this impulsive, itch-scratching thing into something that is far better, far more blessed, and uh, draws you so much deeper to your spouse than what you could have ever had reenacting some scene in your head that you've been looking forward for three weeks. So that, that's my testimony. I, I challenge the high-drive spouse to start trying that, particularly when you get frustrated with the frequency of sex or the quality of the sex or whatever it is that's making you frustrated. What's a healthy number of times a week to have sex? You can text me. <laughs> Anyone want to shout out a number? 72. Oh, wow. <laughs> no. Not healthy. <laughs> Any guesses? Like, what, what's Six. average? <laughs> right. That is true. Um, but when you're making it a priority, the, the average number is three. And that is not a pressure statement because no. there are couples that um, have far less sex. There are couples that have far more sex. But uh, the idea that whatever you decide together, that is partly true. It, it's really where the spirit leads you day to day, minute to minute, hour to hour. When the spirit is leading your sex life, the expectations about frequency go away, especially as the high drive spells. Mm -hmm. Because what you're doing sexually now is feeding into your identity and all your worries about how many times this week, they, they go away, they go away. And the flip side of that, so working on the self-control, right? I'm using the right one. Um, the spouse that's coming home from being gone for three weeks and knows what's been thought about um, way more times than what's been thought about in my brain, um, I kind of have to mentally prepare for that, right? So I have to, well before landing or walking through the door, have to put the list to the side. I have to um, not put the worries in the forefront get the kids off the mind and focus solely on my spouse and know what makes him happy and what makes his pleasure soar. 
And I have to think about that and prepare my mind for that, and that's okay. Many times, couples who are having trouble connecting sexually, it's okay to schedule it. Put it on your calendar. For the low-drive spouse, sometimes that really helps you. You know, okay, this is the day to prep yourself. Think through it. Okay, it's time to relax. We're going to make this work. Tonight's the night. There's no surprises. There's no hopping into bed. And you thought of the one million things you have to do when you wake up at 5.30 in the morning. And you feel this. <laughs> Just you're not mentally there. You're not mentally ready. There is some mental preparation for certain spouses that has to take place. Do it. It's okay. Ask the Holy Spirit for that desire. Ask him as you're walking through that day for the blessing on clearing your mind so you can make your spouse the priority. Trust me, he knows, she knows when you're just going through the motions. Studies have shown that men have way more pleasure in watching their spouse, their wife have pleasure than in their own. They know when you're just going through the motions. Sex is not meant to be a duty. We are not here to fulfill a sexual need. We both have needs. It's mutual. It's meant to be a time to come together in intimacy. So that's a great segue into um, arousal. So we're going to talk a little bit about just some of the mechanics of arousal. Uh, Hopefully this won't weird you out. Hopefully it will resonate. One of the best analogies Marka heard that she shared with me was that uh, female arousal is like a crock pot. So. Starts cold. Starts cold. You turn it on, (laughs) takes several hours to warm up. Male arousal is like a lit blowtorch. (laughs) It does not take long. The... Uh, the average time to go for the male penis to go from flaccid to erect in a high state of arousal is about 30 seconds. The average time for a woman to become aroused is 20 to 40 minutes. And that's with foreplay. Mm-hmm. And foreplay starts outside of the bedroom. That's called before play. <laughs> <laughs> I just came up with that. That was a good one. I haven't heard that before. Yeah. So, uh, so gentlemen, like, like you, you've got this kind of easy, right? Because you just show up and you're ready. Uh, But if you haven't put the work in, you know, to get the crock pot warmed up, and whatever your partner's love language is—is it touch? Is it acts of service? Is it um, quality time? You've got to know that because uh, if you go into a situation where y- your wife is incredibly stressed, you've come home a little cranky, you didn't say thank you for whatever your wife did for you all day, and, and, and you didn't take out the garbage, um, you know, you're, you're going to encounter a spouse that feels obligated to have sex with you because they know you're thinking about it. And, and most wonderful, godly women will put your sexuality, your sexual needs before theirs. 
And that dynamic, again, it plays out over and over and again, and that can become a pattern, and that can really make it hard for the lower sex drive spouse to look forward to sex. Uh, very few people talk about it. Very, it's, it's a very sensitive subject. They don't want to anger it, because sometimes there's anger in the pillow talk. So sometimes the high drive spouse isn't getting what he needs or she needs, and they get frustrated and they can storm out or they can you know, become abrasive during the matter. And now no, none of the lower drive spouse ever want to go into that scene again. So uh, it's critically important to start investing in your spouse uh, for her identity, speaking her love language or his love language, depending on which drive you have, and have that be in the background constantly, constantly. You speak life into your spouse, your sex life will, your sex relationship will improve leaps and bounds. Now we all have bad days. When you're not feeling good, you're stressed, you're exhausted, like Marka would be up all night delivering babies, have, like have to work the I'm next day. I'm stressed all the time. Yeah, well it used to be, you know, and I, I as a surgeon, I have nights like that too. There are days and moments where you, you are just not right for the intimacy. And you have to respect those moments too. Um, so the before play, is, is really, I would say, more important than the actual foreplay because, in general, uh, women and low sex drive spouses don't show up ready to go. So if you understand that, you can kind of look at your life. You can look at the dynamics in your relationship uh, and, and understand how that goes. The other thing is, if you do the same thing every time, you're not impressing the, the haze. <laughs> You're not impressing the snipers because they've already thought their mind, all right, well, that's the sixth time this week, you know, he, he did this extra thing for me and then wanted sex. So you, you men, high drive, sex drive spouses, you have to have a little bit of variety in your game. Um, surprises, things constantly in the background, making sure that this is a different experience, a different perspective. And, and that, I still know your trickery. Yeah, I know. But, <laughs> Sometimes I get an A for effort. Yeah. For sure. Um, yeah, so for any pleasure to occur, and I'm going to extend pleasure to orgasm, you have to have arousal first. No one can organism. No one can orgasm, man or woman, without arousal. And we just spoke about how long it takes for that to happen. What are some ways that you can maybe try to work on arousal um, for the lower drive spouse, typically the wife, back rub? That's a good way to kind of break the ice, to help them relax. Um, for some, it might be a foot rub. Kissing, the number one way to become aroused is a good makeout session. If you haven't done that in a while, if it's typically we jump in bed and we get right to business and a few minutes later we're trying to fall asleep because the duty's done, we haven't spent enough time working on that arousal part, that good session of makeout. And if you're at a point where it's been a long time since you've had an intimate moment, don't go there. Start with a good session of just kissing and leave it at that. It doesn't have to lead anywhere. Reconnect on that physical, emotional, and spiritual level. Keep it simple. It's really tempting to look at sex as an act. 
because we understand the mechanics, we understand what, what sex is, but sex is really a relationship. And so, like any relationship, it requires time, it requires investment, it requires uh, openness, honesty, vulnerability, intimacy. So if you are not talking about sex at all, and you are looking at this as an action or a duty, your sexual relationship, you, you might be having sex, but the sexual relationship is very cold. Um, the sexual relationship feeds on the oneness that, that we talked about initially. And that's a very spiritual concept. That's not just like, I like it when my man talks to me. I like it when you know he tells me things about his day. It, it's literally when you dive deep with your spouse, there's something very spiritual that happens. It's that flesh becoming one. It's the ish and the isha really bringing Yahweh, the picture of Yahweh, in, into your lives. And that spiritual connection, that Christian spiritual connection, is where your sexuality will then emerge from. So imagine there's an umbrella over us, and that umbrella is basically the kingdom of God. So when you're under the umbrella, you're in the kingdom. When you're out of the umbrella, you're subject to all the desires of the flesh, all the temptation of the flesh. You're sort of a sitting duck. You're, you're really battling to get back under the umbrella. The sexual relationship for most couples either sits on the edge of that umbrella or you're standing in the rain because you haven't really connected uh, in, in your marriage with oneness and intimacy to the degree that you can have that sexual relationship with your wife. And so when, when Mark and I encounter issues, the first thing we both get promptings of is that, oh my gosh, like I haven't talked to Mark in depth in like seven days. Like we just haven't connected. We don't have that oneness. I haven't told her about my work day or my concerns or my stresses, you know, in a week. And, and she's stressed because she's starting to make some assumptions about my motivations or what I'm saying. And, and, and whoop, we're outside the umbrella. Find that date night. Find those moments. Put the kids to bed early and take your time. Turn the TV off, turn the phones off, and just talk. Decaf coffee, a tea, whatever it is that needs, just get you relaxed, get you focused. Spend that time. Um, so I, I think uh, that probably more than anything in our marriage right now is where we, we didn't have that 15, 20 years ago. And we really struggled with a lot of our, our sexual relationship. Should we talk you, about orgasm? Yeah. Have you gotten any questions? Uh, I have a couple questions. Okay. You're going to save them? Let, let's, yeah, I'm going to save them, actually. Okay. It, it, again, send me questions if you have them. Did you know that less than 20% of women can reach orgasm by penetration alone? Most guys don't know this. They think their penis is a magic wand. <laughs> like, all I got to do is get it in there. And her world's going to turn upside down. And Good heavens. Wasn't that great? Only 20% of the time. <laughs> Oh. Amnesty, right? This whole evening yeah. you have complete amnesty for confessions like this. If you're having trouble reaching orgasm, it is very possible that we are not hitting all the arousal spots first. We're not spending enough of that 20 to 40 minutes to get there before even orgasm can occur. 
the number one way that most women can achieve orgasm is by touching the clitoris, which is external. We, we, have, we didn't bring our props. Normally we have a crock pot. Normally we have a hard shell taco to show you what it's like for the female anatomy, but I'm gonna have to have you. I mean, truly not many people have actually looked or even know their own anatomy. Women come in all the time. They do not know what things look like down there. I encourage you together, grab a mirror, take a look, learn what it's like. You should be comfortable being naked with your spouse that you've been married to for any more than one month. And um, you should. Take a look, learn the anatomy, learn where things are. So you have the labia minora, those often people call them the lips, right? The labia minora, those are those small lips. At the very top, closest to the belly button where those come together, that's where the clitoris is. The clitoris is like a small penis. It has that many nerve endings. That often needs stimulation to have arousal and to be able to achieve orgasm. There's also a spot that some may not believe in called the G-spot. Has anyone heard of that? Like there's always all these cultural jokes about being able to find it. Indiana Jones and the lost G-spot. <laughs> That's not my joke. No. It is a real spot. It is a real spot. It differs from one woman to the next. Um, so everybody has a little bit different location, but where it is, it's actually a part of the clitoris. It's the, the bulbs of the clitoris that come down into the vagina. It is approximately one half finger length from the opening of the vagina on the top wall, um, so on the belly button side. It's a tissue that, as arousal happens, becomes engorged. That makes a very similar um, analogy to a penis. And with stimulation of that area, many women can achieve orgasm. So. Yeah, on that note. I'll turn it over. I am not a gynecologist. But uh, there, I know for a fact that there is sort of a lot of mythical thinking about the female anatomy in the man's world. It's complex. It, it sometimes it's very intimidating because if you're not a physician, if you've never been introduced to this, and frankly, if you, if you have been pure and holy coming into marriage, this, this may be a very foreign concept. And so that's why we're speaking boldly about it because not everybody really understands this. But one of the issues with female arousal from a male's perspective is you can go to some of these areas way too soon. And so engorgement is a, a physiologic phenomenon where the blood flow to a sexual organ or a breast has to increase to the point where there's actually some lubrication. One of the, one of the least comfortable sensations for women is some type of touch or uh, massage when the tissue is dry. And so uh, arousal is something that takes time so that blood fills that area to the point where it is very comfortable and pleasurable. And so the, a lot of times men come in blowtorch hot, ready to go, and what happens is the tissue just isn't ready and it's very uncomfortable. And we all like to think that, well, if there's penetration, you know, she's gotta be enjoying it. But the truth of the matter is, uh, very often she's not, and she doesn't want to say anything. 
So that communication can happen during sex. One of the worst things you can say is, does this feel good? Because now you've just introduced this pressure. It better feel good, you know? Like, what else is going through your mind as you're penetrating? But, but truthfully, like, you can use words like pressure. Is that too much pressure? Uh, should I change position? And giving your partner a sense of control in that moment is really important. Because if she's someone who is, is very loyal and dutiful, if it hurts, she may never say anything. And she may dread it the next time because she has no way to address it. She doesn't feel comfortable addressing it. She doesn't, you know, she's, she knows her husband's going to feel criticized and he might get upset. So start talking while you're having sex and asking, is this too much pressure? Is this the right angle? Uh, man, you'll be amazed at what response you get. Uh, it's a loving, gracious question. And uh, again, it, it's an under the umbrella question. There's nothing sinful about asking these things. And it's so important to the, just the physiology of sex. I just forgot what I was gonna say. That's right, hold on. The analogy in the mail <laughs> <laughs> is a little different. So uh, how much time do we have, you guys? Okay, we can cover the penis in like 50 seconds. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, penises are filled with blood, which makes them erect. The veins that bring the blood out of the penis have valves inside of them that stop the blood flow for a period of time. And so you've heard this thing about Viagra, if you have an erection for more than four hours, go to the hospital. Well, that's because those valves in the vein have clamped down and they're not gonna open. And so if the blood stays in the penis too long, it begins to clot and it causes all kinds of trouble. That does not happen with a natural erection. But uh, the blood in the penis makes it rigid. When the tissue is engorged, just like the female tissue is engorged, the G-spot for the male, or the, the sensitive spot for the male, is under the tip of the penis. So imagine this is the penis. There's a nickel-sized area right here. There's the purple part and there's the other part. It's about a nickel-sized surface on the bottom. Uh, the base of the penis, the scrotum, has some nerve endings, but like the, the nickel-sized spot on the base, on the undersurface of the penis, has nerve endings only second to the clitoris. So when, male, when men penetrate, what they're feeling is the stimulation of that G-spot, and that's why the penetration is so powerful for men. Uh, erectile dysfunction, if you've had an orgasm, you have also had erectile dysfunction. Because after you ejaculate as a male, there's something called the refractory period, where you literally cannot get an erection, you cannot ejaculate for a period of time until your body resets itself. It's a reflex in your genitals, but it's also controlled by your brain. No matter how hard you try, guys, if you have ejaculated, unless you're about 13 years old, 20 minutes later, you probably can't do it again. <laughs> uh, the other thing that happens is as we age, with each decade of life, your refractory period gets longer and longer. So the average refractory period of a 70-year-old is 24 hours. That doesn't mean you're like king of you know, the king of sex, if you're a two-hour refractory period at age 70, good for you, great. We're not breaking records here. But on average, it's 24 hours. And so uh, women also need to understand this, that like sometimes the man will have the orgasm, the woman's still really aroused and has not had an orgasm yet, and she's like, where is it? And like, well, 
Dr. Steensma said it's not going to work for a few hours. <laughs> this is when you can find those other pleasure areas and help your women still reach orgasm without penetration because that only happens about 20% of the time. So Don't stop. Don't stop. Just to backpedal, I want everyone to know sex should not be painful. If it hurts, you need to speak to your physician about it. If your physician just looks at you and says, well, I'm sorry, it's because you're X amount of age or something, find a new physician. Okay? There are things that can be done. It should not be painful. Um, yes, with age, our skin goes through a lot of changes. The tissue is so dependent on estrogen, we lose our estrogen starting in this, and our testosterone. We lose that starting in our mid-20s, men and women. Women, we start losing our estrogen when we start walking into menopause. That leads to dryness, pain, cracking. When you have sex and it hurts, are you really going to want to go back again and do it again the next day? No. Do you touch an oven that's hot and go back and touch it every single day? No. You learn that it hurts. You don't want to keep doing it. We have remedies for that. There are things to do. Lubrication is the number one thing to use. Everyone has access to coconut oil, the best lubricant that you can get at any grocery store near you, big buckets at Costco. <laughs> wow, you really like coconut oil. Yeah. yeah. We make a lot of popcorn. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we have others that I will mention. Uber Lube is our favorite. I'll just put that right out there. Uber, like the car company, Lube, you can buy it online. They have it on Amazon. They have their own website. It ships discreetly to your house. Get it before your kids pick up the package. That happened. That happened. Thankfully, the card said also for hair. So Matt just made that, oh, it's for mom's hair. It says it's for hair. <laughs> it wasn't a lie. <laughs> um, the other thing I really want to point out is... When you think you've figured out your spouse, now that you're spending time with each other and you're talking about this outside of the bedroom, learning what each other likes, men, it changes daily. It changes often. And it changes often. So what worked yesterday will likely not work tomorrow. And that we don't know either. It just takes a little bit of exploration. And you thought figuring out where to go out to eat was hard. It's true. That's why it takes 20 to 40 minutes. Most of that time is probably figuring out which part is going to feel good that day. <laughs> uh, we had a very good question came over the text. Is oral sex godly? Um, Song I songs. I want to redirect that question a little bit. What is in your heart when you think of oral sex? And what is in your heart when you and your spouse engage in oral sex? Uh, it's very clear that our hearts uh, deceive us. So when we say, oh, I think my heart says this, and I think my heart is this when it comes to this, the, the Bible is very clear. We don't understand our hearts. You need the spirit to reveal why oral sex is what you want to do. Is, is your heart pure in this area? If it's not, if you want to do it because you saw a video of some guy getting it, that's outside the umbrella that is subject to the devil's influence. You need the spirit to clarify that for you and the couple. Um, that whether it's a sin or not, I would leave that to the theologians. It is referenced in Song of Songs, but I think when it comes to sexuality in the bedroom, uh, 
in marriage, we need a playbook, not a rule book. The rule book suppresses, the, the, the focus on sexual morality outside of marriage gets superimposed on our marriages and it's not right, it's not right. So what goes in a marriage, it's what you both agree on. When you talk about what you'd like to try, you don't start trying it until you realize that your spouse agrees and, and is comfortable with that or working toward that or just ask them to consider that. So um, we have to wrap it up.